being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 41 imperial japan part 11 spikelopedia number four yoshiko kawashima part one or the beauty in men's clothing today i'm recording from port arthur china in episodes 31 and 32 I talked about Yoshiko Kawashima. She was the ethnic Manchu princess who was given to a Japanese man and became a spy for Imperial Japan. She would flout binaries and break gender conventions, right? Then later on, she led a rebel army to fight quote unquote bandits. It almost sounds like a movie, right? Something too good to be true. Larger than life and she is depicted in the film The Last Emperor, as well as many other films. In her day, there were many articles and multiple novels about her which built up this mythos. Well, when I got into it, I found the reality to be much, much weirder and more interesting than the myth. There are a lot of twists and turns in this story, but it will take us through many of the scenes that we have talked about, many of the scenes and places that we have talked about in prior episodes, We'll see many of the events, some of the key events that we have talked about, and it will set up nicely some of the stuff we'll talk about in the future. Let's get into it. Yoshiko Kawashima was born in Beijing in 1907. Her birth name was Aisin Gyoro Xianyu of the Aisin Gyoro clan. For continuity's sake, I will call her by her Japanese name most of the time. Her father was a Manchu prince known as Shanqi also known as Aitong, also known as Prince Su. Yoshiko was her father's 14th daughter, born to his fourth concubine. Prince Su ultimately had 38 children total. Prince Su was quite wealthy, and the first half of his life was centered around trying to carry out a coup d'etat. The whole latter half of his life was dedicated to trying to restore the Manchu Qing dynasty which fell in 1912. When she was still quite young, due to political unrest, as in the revolution, as in the pre-communist 1911 revolution, the entire household moved from Beijing to Port Arthur, which is on the Liaodong Peninsula, sticking out into the Yellow Sea. If you look at a map, there's a big peninsula immediately to the left of Korea. The Shandong Peninsula, which we have talked about before, it's the other peninsula also sticking out into the Yellow Sea, but on the other side of China. Qingdao is relatively nearby Port Arthur by way of boat, you know, on the Yellow Sea. So we are essentially talking about Manchuria here. Prince Su found himself with a lot more time on his hands after essentially the Qing dynasty was falling. So there are these lovely stories of him taking his family, his dozens and dozens of children on hiking trips, and he began to teach his daughters archery. He also ensured that they had Japanese tutors. In fact, he was raising his children to be culturally Japanese in a certain sense. He dressed them in Japanese clothes and so on. This was because Prince Su was essentially hoping for the Japanese to restore the Qing dynasty and specifically to put him in power, right? The historian Christopher Duell described Prince Su's home, saying, 
Prince Sue's home in Port Arthur became a de facto headquarters for quasi-clandestine independence plots, independence movement plots, with the constant coming and going of various Japanese, Chinese, Manchu, and Mongol parties. He also used the term busy conspirators lair and described how the home was filled with weapons and explosives, currency, and imperial dragon armbands. One of the key figures in the household was Prince Su's close friend and advisor, Naniwa Kawashima, who was serving as the secret liaison between the Japanese government and the army in China. Now, I know it's been a while since we've talked about Manchukuo, like that was all the way back in episode 31. But we are essentially talking about the same region, except several decades before Manchukuo would be established in 1934. This is the period of time when Japan was attempting to convince the region and the world that the Manchu and the Mongols were closer to the Japanese than to the Han Chinese. We're talking about, like, made-up linguistics, made-up history, and they were aiming on backing quote-unquote independence movements to liberate Manchuria and Mongolia from China. And to be fair, like, they're, you know, they weren't completely inventing whole cloth some of these claims as well, right? But notice the concept here. Using ethnic groups to drive wedges to, tr- to break up large countries in order to advance one's own imperial aims. And doing it by backing largely invented or astroturfed or real separatist movements. And using venal and or evil aristocrats and nobility to do that. I wonder if you ever see that tactic come up anywhere else. That's just Empire Building 101, right? So Prince Su gave his daughter to Naniwa Kawashima, and in doing so, she received a Japanese name, Yoshiko Kawashima. Now there's a lot of speculation as to why Prince Su did this. The generally agreed upon reason at the time was that the prince took pity on Naniwa, whose marriage produced no children. That's what Naniwa said himself, in fact. Naniwa wrote, He told me that he was sending me a toy. Additionally, Prince Su already had 13 daughters, so what's giving one away, right? It is also believed that Prince Su hoped to strengthen his bond with Naniwa and to deepen their mutual commitment to the Qing resurgence. It's not entirely clear exactly how old Yoshiko, like when Yoshiko was born, but it is believed that she was around 8 years old when she was given to Naniwa. We have Yoshiko's words describing this period of her life. One day I was asleep in my bed, in my father Prince Su's mansion, and the next day I found myself in Japan. I was taken away without knowing what was happening to me. Now would be a good time to talk about who exactly was Naniwa Kawashima. Born in 1865, he was fluent in Chinese. He worked as a translator in a bunch of capacities. He also became known as a, as a Tairiku Ronin, or a continental adventurer, very much like Nisho Inoue, though a whole generation or two earlier, right? In 1919, the New York Times described these Japanese types in China as, quote, those gentlemen who are conspicuous by the lack of wealth, occupation, and profession, but have a lot of big political ideas. Whatever their motives, these Japanese ronin were a disorderly bunch, who became known for things as diverse as aiding Chinese revolutionaries or leading murderous mobs to kill the Chinese. Kawashima, 
Naniwa Kawashima functioned also as a China expert, and he would advise the Japanese government on China policy. He once wrote, quote, Manchuria is the very nerve center of East Asia's life and death struggle. It was Naniwa's dream to create an independent state in Manchuria and Mongolia. Essentially, he was dreaming for Manchukuo, and he worked his whole life to achieve those ends. Now, we also know that Naniwa functioned as an agent of the Japanese government supplying arms to various groups in that region, including Yoshiko's father, but also many other groups. Yes, he is literally doing the same kind of work that Nisho Inoue was doing, though perhaps, possibly, he was higher up on the rung, higher up in the hierarchy, and also, you know, decades before. Naniwa, for example, was in the mix during the Boxer Rebellion. By his telling, he was actually on the ground at the time of the night of the attack in the year 1900 on the Forbidden City by German forces. This was, you know, taking place in the midst of the Boxer Rebellion, right? And the way Naniwa tells it, he saved the palace and the Qing royal family's lives. Whether or not that's true, I could not say, but he did seem to have the good graces of the Qing royal family, and his relationship to Prince Su dated back from this time, so there's probably something to it. Naniwa became an important agent of the Japanese government. He would work with the Qing royal family, because officially the Japanese government said that they did not interfere with Chinese politics. And like, that was their official line. Naniwa Kawashima could be very broad-minded, and he wrote things like, The proper way for Japan and China to interact should not be based on capitalist exploitation, nor on invasions by militarists, but rather their exchanges must be based on a humanism founded on brotherly love that is mutually beneficial. Which, I mean, yeah, sure, man. Naniwa would also make pretty frank assessments like, China is like a wrecked car, or the Chinese people are like sand, completely incapable of forming a strong union on their own. And if you were to say that about certain periods of Chinese history, like, I guess. To an extent, Naniwa kind of sponged off of Prince Su and his wealth, and they got into all kinds of interesting business ventures together. Some of them, I can't help but think, must have been outright frauds, though I'm sure some of them were intended to be real, right? For example, Naniwa tried to go into oil field development together, but that failed. He also tried to make a product called Prince Z Champagne Cider. More tellingly, though, Naniwa wrote, I often say that Prince Su's family is like China in miniature. If you want to know China, just study them. Prince Su was a great person, rare among men in China, but his more than 20 children don't resemble him at all. It's ironic, but in their stupid vulgarity, they are perfect examples of the Chinese mentality." Unquote. You know, it's pretty dark, but I suppose that Prince Su's family was also like China in miniature in that Naniwa raped one of them. Oh, yeah, content warning for sure. Uh, for the following three episodes, you know, we will be talking about some pretty dark stuff here and there, 
And as always, I try not to be terribly explicit. So Yoshiko was sent to Japanese schools. There's a story of her showing up for the first day of school on a horse. And she told her classmates that this horse was a descendant of the very same horse that Napoleon would ride. As you might expect, that made a pretty wild first impression. She was said to be a class clown, and she would write, My clowning ruins the study time of the other students, but I am, and my enemies will laugh at this, in my heart, not enjoying myself at all. Tears of a clown, right? Being royalty and a transplant, she took more of an attitude of, like, that she was just auditing classes, and she did not dedicate herself to her studies at all. You know, both going off of what she said and others. But she was generally considered bright. She did learn calligraphy, haiku, painting, tea ceremony, and flower arrangements. But what was Nanua's household like? Well, for one thing, this wasn't just a normal house. We're talking about a large manor in Tokyo, which had upwards of 200 cherry blossom trees. For another thing, Naniwa Kawashima's wife, Fuku, was mentally ill. Although, like we've talked about, you know, especially with like the Bulwer-Lynn family, we have to take that diagnosis with a grain of salt because Naniwa Kawashima was constantly unfaithful to her. Unfortunately, Fuku reportedly took a lot of that frustration out on Yoshiko, which is essentially we have the classic evil stepmother situation. Along the same lines, Yoshiko said that Naniwa Kawashima was physically abusive to her. We have the comments of a relative of Naniwa who described the household as follows, quote, in those days, right-wing hotheads set the tone in the Kawashima's in the Kawashima household. Weirdos and strange China ronin connected to the Dark Ocean Society infested the house. The live-in students and the rest saw themselves as heroic types in training for great deeds. The world of these hotheads seemed idiotic to me, but from their point of view, I was just some heretic. Unquote. Take note here. Not only was Prince Su's family filled with filled with revolutionaries, so too was Naniwa's house, filled with Dark Ocean Society, ultranationalists, and China Ronin, none of whom were probably a good influence on Yoshiko Kawashima either, though influence her they did. There was one person truly in Yoshiko's corner, the only person she could really rely on, and she was quite an interesting character herself, Matsue Akabane. Akabane lived quite a life before she was Yoshiko's tutor. She studied in the United States, at Columbia University in fact, and she had a real talent for languages. She had taught many foreign students, and she helped Yoshiko acquire a real talent for languages too. Now the entire time that Yoshiko Kawashima lived at Naniwa's house, she was known as Naniwa's adopted daughter. Though she was never legally adopted, nor was she entered into the family register. This would have grave implications later. Here's another great passage about her childhood. Quote, she would one moment look so beautiful, with the mouth like a pomegranate flower and her pearly teeth. But then the next moment she would let out a really incredible sound that was like a croaking toad. Everyone passing by turned around to see what had happened. Even as a young child, I wondered about these boyish habits of hers, 
which did not go well with her lovely appearance and was most unbecoming of a princess. Unquote. Let's talk about Yoshiko's vision of herself. She came across a book, The Story of Joan of Arc. She deeply identified with Joan of Arc. She envisioned herself as the ethnic Manchu Joan of Arc. She wrote, quote, That day on the way home from school, I bought The Story of Joan of Arc, and I stayed up till 10 o'clock at night reading the whole thing. As I was reading, I kept thinking, I also want to become Joan of Arc. The next day I went to school rubbing my sleepy eyes and started acting like Joan of Arc, telling everyone things like, if I had 3,000 soldiers, I would take China, unquote. This was her vision of herself, but Naniwa also reinforced that idea, and of course he had his own reasons for wishing her to be a Manchu liberator. Now let's talk about some of the darker aspects of Yoshiko's time with Naniwa. We know that her time in the Kawashima household was not very happy, but things took a dark turn when she got older. Tellingly, Fuku Kawashima left the house as Yoshiko entered puberty. Now, years after this time, in 1932, a famous Japanese author named Shofumura Matsu wrote a best-selling novel, The Beauty in Men's Clothing, which was based on Yoshiko's life. He had met Yoshiko Kawashima after the Shanghai incident of 1932, which, if you'll recall, I talked about that in episode 32, and we will definitely catch up to that point with Yoshiko, but he met her after that, and he said, regarding the novel he wrote, quote, You can say that the beauty in men's clothing was a collaborative work by Kawashima, by Yoshiko Kawashima and myself. A collaborative work. Interesting. But it isn't just Yoshiko Kawashima telling him stories, right? In fact, Major Ryukichi Tanaka told Moromatsu to write the novel. More on that in the future. But you know how we've talked about, you know, truths hidden in fiction? Well, the novel The Beauty in Men's Clothing contains a scene where the fictional version of Yoshiko Kawashima is raped by the fictional version of Naniwa Kawashima. And, as sometimes happens, the serialized novel that appeared in magazines contained a more explicit version, which was later toned down in the published book version. Many, many years later, in 1956, in a Japanese magazine, Yoshiko's brother, Xian Li, said, In other words, Naniwa Kawashima wanted to get his hands on Yoshiko. He was in love with her, who was 40 years younger. I'd heard from Yoshiko that Naniwa had really been after her. She cried and complained to me about this. What did Yoshiko Kawashima have to say? Quote, I don't want to talk now or in the future about what went on in the Kawashima house. Therefore, I also don't want to write too honestly about what happened to me when I was 16. Unquote. Which is entirely valid, and I respect that, except there's no way that the story and its details would have made it into the Muramatsu novel without her telling him those details. And given her role as a spy at the time, I don't think that she told him that accidentally, right? I think it was very consciously her way of getting back at Naniwa many years later. That's my take. No one knows for sure. And if so, like, that's cool. Like, I'm not saying that's bad, right? Just interesting to think about. Now, as she became a grown woman, she began to have suitors. 
The first love of her life was a man named Eiji Moriyama, who belonged to an ultranationalist group called the League for the Prevention of Communism. He had been involved in an assault on Goto Shinpei, a Japanese politician who supported better relations with the Soviet Union. Moriyama was often under police surveillance. One story says that in one of Yoshiko Kawashima's suicide attempts, Moriyama saved her life. The next first love of her life was Ainosuke Awata, who was the head of the Patriotic Society, and he served a 12-year prison sentence for helping assassinate another Japanese politician in the foreign ministry who had opposed a theoretical Manchukuo. Iwata did not do the killing, but he was closely enough associated with the assassin who did kill the minister, and as the story goes, this assassin, after killing the minister, then skillfully committed seppuku over a map of China so that his blood poured over Manchuria and Mongolia. That's the story. I don't know how you could manage that, but maybe. Iwata wanted to marry Yoshiko, but she wanted to kill herself, so he gave her a pistol. He thought that, you know, this was some sexual frisson, that this was just a game, but she shot herself in the chest. Speaking about this later, he said, I didn't think she would really do it. The next first love of her life was Lieutenant Toru Yamaga, by far the most respectable suitor up to this point. The Asai Shimbun published a story, quote, Chinese, the catalyst for Yoshiko's marriage, love develops with Lieutenant from Matsumoto's 50th Regiment. This is curious. Yamaga did not marry her, and then the Asai Shimbun published Yamaga's rejection of her, again, this is weird, because yes, it is kind of newsworthy. She's a Manchu princess, but, like, it's it's weird to be reporting on this in general, right? Now, it's around this time that Yoshiko Kawashima decided, quote, I've had all this trouble because I'm a woman, unquote, and she chose to cut off all her hair. Which, I mean, valid, right? Like, change your hair, change your life, all that. But local woman gets a haircut, doesn't sound newsworthy either. And mind you, this is 1925, but the SI Shimbun published the following article. Kawashima Yoshiko's beautiful black hair, completely cut off because of unfounded rumors, makes firm decision to become a man, touching secret tale of her shooting herself. Now, for readers who aren't up on the major Japanese newspapers, the Asai Shimbun is one of the largest, oldest, and most respectable newspapers in Japan. It would be a, like literally like if the New York Times were reporting on something like this. How is this newsworthy, right? It's because they were in the process of creating the Yoshiko Kawashima myth. Intentionally, that's why. The article also included Yoshiko's thoughts on her gender. Mind you, this is like before she's done anything notable with her life whatsoever, other than just be, you know, the daughter of Prince Su. Quote, I was born with what the doctors call a tendency towards the third sex, so I cannot pursue an ordinary woman's goals in life. People criticize me and say that I am perverted, and maybe they're right. I just can't behave like an ordinary feminine woman. Since I was young, I've been dying to do the things that boys do. My impossible dream is to work hard like a man for China and for Asia. I want nothing more in this world than to throw my whole life into working for the nation. Unquote. Now, from this point on, Yoshiko Kawashima would often cross-dress. 
Interestingly, this is also around the time that Yoshiko became a full-fledged spy for the Japanese. Though, and we will get into this distinction too, she certainly viewed herself as spying first and foremost for the Manchu and for Qing restoration, which is to say restoration of her family to the throne, right? So it would certainly be fair that she did not consider herself a traitor in any sense. Interesting, right? So from 1925 on, Yoshiko and Naniwa both moved to China, to Dalian specifically. Again, the headlines followed them. The troubled Kawashima Yoshiko starts a new life again. In this article, Naniwa is quoted as saying, I wouldn't say that Yoshiko is asexual, but rather blessed by nature with both male and female aspects. Naniwa then married her off to a Mongol military leader, Ganjurjob, who was the first love of her life. Ganjurjob's father, who was a Mongol military leader, had been killed in an uprising that was financed by Prince Su and assisted by Naniwa Kawashima. Ganjurjob had been trained by the Japanese army. Many years later, Yoshiko said that she had been forced into the marriage. She said, I was recovering from an illness when I was told that I was to be married the next day. Surprised and furious, I walked out during the ceremony. When my groom tried to put the wedding ring on my finger, I brushed his hand aside, and the ring fell to the ground. It's odd, but to this day, I don't know where the ring went. Now, here's the best part about that story. There is a photograph of their wedding, and Yoshiko is very clearly wearing her wedding ring in the photo. Virtually nothing Yoshiko Kawashima said can be taken as the gospel truth. Yoshiko's family members also remember the wedding, writing many years later that Yoshiko had known Gondrajob since his time living at Naniwa's house in Tokyo, and Yoshiko's brother, Xian Li, believed that Yoshiko, in fact, did agree to marry him. This marriage was attended by pretty freaking high-ranking Japanese military officials in the region, like the chief of the general staff, as well as Colonel Daisaku Komoto, who just six months later would assassinate the warlord Zhang Zhulin. If you'll recall, we mentioned Zhang Zhulin in episode 31 about Manchuria. Now, Yoshiko's marriage was part of the Japanese army's cultural warfare. They were trying to foster ties between Japan and, Mon and Mongolia. In the words of Phyllis Birnbaum, if they could plant the idea that Manchuria and Mongolia are one, in the minds of the public, ordinary people would go along with the military's goal of establishing an independent state, and would give it their support. What better way to drive home such a point than to promote the marriage of this attractive young pair, who were not, strictly speaking, Manchu-Mongol royalty, but were pleasing enough in their own way to serve as the kind of symbol that the Kwantung army sought." Unquote. But was their marriage a happy one? No. Yoshiko said, my daily life was unbearably oppressive. Gondrajob's brother later wrote about the marriage, saying, Almost immediately after her marriage, she abandoned all of her domestic responsibilities. She went out and enjoyed herself all over town every day. The dance halls and coffee shops became like a home to her. The Japanese were extremely curious about her and would clamor around her whenever they spotted her. They asked her to dance or got her autograph or escorted her to restaurants. She stopped spending any time in our house. 
Afterwards, Ganjurjab took her away with him to Tushietu and tried to lead a quiet life there. But how could you expect her to have the patience to live on one of those bleak, lonely plains? Then she just disappeared. We had no idea where she was. My brother felt that she was already sunk into depravity by then, and nothing could save her, so he did not go looking for her. Unquote. They eventually divorced, and Ganderjob remarried not long afterwards. They reportedly had an amicable divorce, and Yoshiko would send a gift to each child that Ganderjob would have. What happened to Ganderjob? Because he will not come up in this story again. Gondrajab had joined the Mongolian Independence Army, which was trained and funded by the Japanese and factions of the Qing Dynasty. Functionally speaking, their whole purpose for being was to fight the Han Chinese in the region. Years later, after the defeat of Imperial Japan, Gondrajab was captured and he was forced to give a lengthy confession of his crimes. He wrote, My troops spent half a year in Jindong and Rehi fighting against the anti-Japanese forces that were headed by General Deng Hua and Commander Li. Altogether, there were 40 battles, not counting the small ones. In total, more than 3,000 members of the anti-Japanese forces were killed or wounded. We seized 1,600 weapons, rifles, carbines, and pistols. A truck was also part of our booty. More than 10 members of the anti-Japanese forces were captured. I can't remember how they were dealt with. My troops also seized more than 200 of the civilians' work animals, horses, donkeys, and mules. Although some of them were returned to their owners before we withdrew from the region, we still kept more than 30 for ourselves. Later, I received four mules from the 5th Regiment without feeling any shame. In the summer of 1933, under orders from the Council of the Puppet State of Manchukuo, we started to confiscate the weapons scattered among the local population in the southern part of the, of the Qingyan province. I divided my officers in the police bureau into three groups. Each group was headed by a Japanese and sent them off to work in the different districts. We confiscated any weapons we could find, rifles, guns, as well as cannons. Three groups had various troubles when they were collecting the weapons. The Mongols lived on hunting and grazing and found it hard to survive without weapons. In a fight between the Japanese and the Mongols, a Japanese stabbed a Mongol with his Japanese sword. After a long time, we finally confiscated 17,000 weapons in the area we controlled. We made the lives of the people there worse, especially the people who depended on hunting and grazing. We caused much suffering among the people whose livestock was wounded or killed by wolves during this time. According to the statistics of the Qing'an province, there were 10 to 20,000 head of livestock lost per year after we confiscated their guns." Unquote. In case you were wondering, yes, that is definitely a communist-style confession of crimes, right? You can almost tell by the tone. So what can we learn from Yoshiko Kawashima's early life? For one thing, I think it is safe to say that royalty is bad. <laughs> and the way that Prince Su treated his daughter, giving her away in general, but also giving her to a guy like Naniwa Kawashima, that would be a pretty obvious example of royalty treating their daughters like poker chips, right? Like, I am aware that I am viewing this from a modern and western lens, but it wasn't good for anyone, right? We saw how Nanua Kawashima was a Tairiku Ronin and an early ultra-nationalist. He was the type of guy who dreamed about carving up China for Japan's long-term geopolitical ends. 
He got caught up in all kinds of plots. We are going to examine his network at greater length in the following episodes. Yoshiko Kawashima was physically and sexually abused. We should not forget that when we think about her life. But, of course, she was much more than that, for good and for bad, and we should keep in mind how many people experienced similar things and made better choices than she did. Then, we got our first indications that the Yoshiko Kawashima myth was an intentional creation, a construct that would never have existed without the Japanese army, and without the ultra-nationalist networks getting journalists and authors to construct it for them. We will explore that theme much more in the episodes to come. Now, for sources today, I used the book Manchu Princess, Japanese Spy, the story of Kawashima Yoshiko, the cross-dressing spy who commanded her own army by Phyllis Birnbaum. I also used a variety of news articles. Also, to a lesser extent, the Seagraves book Gold Warriors, as well as the book Confessions of a Yakuza by Junichi Saga. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. Check out my Patreon, where I do one-off episodes on very fun topics. Now I need to be on my way to the Majestic Hotel in Shanghai. See you next week, and God bless. Second.